and welcome to MetCast, the official podcast of Manchester Metropolitan University. The FIFA World Cup in Qatar starts on Sunday, and this time, more than usual, the tournament has had a controversial build-up from the very start. In this episode of MetCast, we talk to Dr Paul Brannigan, a senior lecturer in sports policy and management at Manchester Metropolitan University Institute of Sport. Dr Brannigan has researched the World Cup for many years and is the author of the book Qatar and the 2022 FIFA World Cup. In this episode, we will talk to him all about the politics and controversies surrounding the World Cup, including the political motivations of Qatar and what impact this tournament might have on the country going forward. So the tournament's being promoted by its promoters as a tournament like no other, which I think isn't wrong, but maybe not for the reasons that you'd want to promote it. And when you think about a World Cup, you know, it should be held across the world, you know, just as the name suggests. But what is it about the tournament this time that makes it so controversial? So it's a really good question. I think, yes, I think, ironically, the host will be correct in saying it will be a tournament like, or already has been a tournament like no other, but not, as you quite rightly said, for the reasons that they envisage. So it's essentially, the reason it's so controversial are two things. So first of all, when Qatar was awarded the World Cup, it was a huge surprise. No one thought this country that has, you know, it's the same size as Plymouth, has smaller population than, than most major cities and everything else was going to host a World Cup. And particularly given that in the round in 2010, who Qatar beat were the likes of the UK, USA, Japan, Australia, right? So much A, larger countries, but B, countries with a much richer football pedigree. So Qatar was a new kid on the block and it really came out of nowhere and surprised everyone. So I think because of that, it's gained an awful lot of critical press. I think the second thing is just what we tend to see is the way the media work is leading up to the World Cup, they haven't really got much to talk about in terms of sport. So what they try and do is fill that void. It tends to be a critical focus on the countries or, or cities, various issues at home. So by hosting these World, you know, World Cup, Olympic Games, cities open themselves up, but in doing so invite the media to sort of take a, a critical look. So if you look at Qatar, normally these events are, are awarded six years in advance. Qatar is unique, it's the only second tournament ever to actually be awarded 12 years in advance. So it's been in that pre-event critical phase much, much longer than anyone else. Yeah, and when you talk about Qatar's issues at home, can you just describe you know, what, what those are? Yeah, so I think the backdrop to this is really key. So Qatar gained independence in 1971. Now, unlike you know, where we're sitting in Manchester or the UK or the US, which is uh, countries and cities and places that develop over many, many, many decades, Qatar has really changed in a, in a handful of decades. You know? So it's a country that's moving up incredibly quickly. Anyone who's ever been to the Middle East, it's essentially been a construction site. I mean, you know, I remember going there and then about six months later, the road that I stayed on wasn't there anymore. It wasn't the road anymore. It was like something else, you know. So these are countries moving really quickly. Now, I think it's pretty fair to say they've bitten off a bit more than they can chew. And what I mean by that is they're focusing so much on the infrastructure and construction and getting that complete. But what tends to happen is a lot of the more social sort of side of things get left behind and are very, very slow and inflexible when it comes to changes. Now in Qatar, we see sort of three, I guess, major areas of, of controversy. The first is around what's called the kafala system, which essentially means if I'm a worker who's not Qatari, in order to work in Qatar, I have to find a sponsor who has to be a Qatari. 
and that sponsor is basically in charge of my passport, my wage, my accommodation, any issue I've got, I have to go to that person. So essentially what that does is it creates what has been called modern day sort of slavery because essentially all the workers that come over, particularly from you know, sort of South Asian or blue collar workers are legally and socially bound to their sponsor. Now, of course, this has then led to issues around human rights, very, you know, lack of pay, dangerous working conditions, etc., etc. So that's the kafala. I think the two other things that Qatar has really received scrutiny for is one, the accusation it bribed to get the World Cup, and the other one is that it's considered by some to be a sort of ineffective or unsuitable destination to host the World Cup because of its heat and various other things, hence why we've got, you know, Winter World Cup. So it's sort of those sort of three waves that have added to its controversy, I think. Yeah. And obviously the FIFA World Cup is one of the biggest sports tournaments in in the world. Why would FIFA agree to host there? You know, isn't it a big risk for them to do that? It is, you're absolutely right, Jess. It's a massive risk, but I think it's probably a necessary risk. So I think it's important to remember FIFA is a, a business and will constantly search out new markets. Now What's the one area of the world that's really investing heavily in sport? You know, where's the money? It's the Middle East. It's Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UAE. So I think you can't really ignore these various countries. I think the other side of that is, as you mentioned at the beginning, it is a World Cup. It's just a matter of time before we had to have a Middle East World Cup. Otherwise, you'd have to essentially change the name. So I think for FIFA, this has been risky. But I think long term, it's one way in which they're looking to break into new, very wealthy markets, I think. And normally when we talk about the legacy of a sport event, or in, in this case, the World Cup, what does the host nation what, want to achieve? What lasting impression will it have? And when we think about London 2012 with the Olympics, you know, with, you know we're talking about how we're going to look after our nation and our local communities and the health and the well-being and all these like nice buildings and facilities. I think it's... Is it safe to say that this time it's slightly different for Qatar and their, their legacy? Yes and no. So I think, yes, you're absolutely right. If you read any, if you picked up any bid book for the Olympic Games or a World Cup, there would be, right, you know, okay, uh, new infrastructure, health, mental well-being, you know, uh, some sort of identity legacy, etc., etc. A lot of the times, these health legacies are very rarely actually achieved. You look at London as a really good example. I think the focus was on getting one million Londoners to take up sport. And nowhere near was that achieved, not even 10% of that was achieved, you know. And what we see with sport, actually hosting a main event usually does very little to change public behaviour. So it's actually quite refreshing that Qatar are not focusing on that entirely. However, one of the key things they do want to do is try and install a sports culture in Qatar. Because per capita they have some of the highest obesity and diabetes rates in the world. So there is still that focus. I just think where Qatar are, there's, there's sort of, that's a sort of very much secondary or tertiary type legacy. So with Qatar, because it's so small, the key thing here is putting itself on the map, but particularly emerging out of the sort of foreign policy shadow of its much, much, much larger neighbour Saudi Arabia, who in you know, previous times have laid claim to Qatari land. You know? So I think, for, 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 yeah, I think the key thing here is about visibility, it's overcoming that, introducing itself to the world. Now, you could arguably say it has achieved that. People know who Qatar are, they know what Qatar is now, good or bad. Whereas, so let's say, more sort of emergent countries and cities like London or whatever, that's more about re-changing or, or shifting one's image to, to create a new image sort of thing. Yeah. And would you say that the World Cup is an example of sports washing, so using an event to boost their image when it actually isn't that good? 
Again, yes or yes and no. I think so. Sports washing is a bit of a dodgy term because it's a media term. It's not really an academic term. We would more commonly say this is an example of soft power. However, obviously, yes, Qatar are deliberately cuddling up to sport and major events and international organisations to improve their image. But again, a lot of time that's just a soft power strategy, which we've been talking about for, for decades. And do you think that because of the kind of severity of the issues that we now all have become aware of since they've put themselves forward to be hosts of the World Cup, is it kind of impossible now for us to change the way I think and for us to kind of know who they are, go and visit there? I don't think people are ever going to be tourists there. So one of the greatest fears of Qatar and it looks like this is happening, I think we're in a position where we can say this is going to happen, is that most people, particularly from the Western Hemisphere, will not stay in Qatar. They will fly and stay in Abu Dhabi or Dubai, right? I mean, let's be honest, most people on their bucket list is, is to visit Dubai. I don't know anyone who's saying, you know, top of my bucket list is Doha, Qatar. So I think those countries have been quite clever because they've introduced shuttle runs, which are flights will go every half an hour from like Dubai to Qatar. It's a half hour flight, it's perfect. So. Yes, I think from this World Cup, we've certainly come to know Qatar in more negative terms. But even if we hadn't, and we just you know, literally took at face value what we see during the tournament, will Qatar be a long-term tourist destination? I'm unsure of that, if I'm honest. And I think they probably know that. I think they are, you know, very much they realise that Dubai is the leisure tourism hub. It's one of the leading in the world. You can't compete with it. Qatar wants to see itself much more as a sort of business and political tourism hub. So I think in terms of business tourism, yes. But unfortunately, business tourism isn't the key tourism. Ideally, what you want is leisure tourism. You want families bringing their, their kids and spending lots of money in restaurants and everything else. So I don't think it'll be that kind of long-term tourism. I don't think it'll have the, that, that kind of impact for them. No. And do you think, is there a potential that it could create a different kind of legacy in that, obviously, these issues have been brought to light now, so is there kind of a chance that we create the legacy and forces Qatar to make any changes because we've highlighted these not the issues that are not okay. Yeah, absolutely. So what you're describing there is called global domestic politics. So on the one hand, if you're hosting a major event like a Football World Cup, it's a soft power opportunity for the host, but it's also a soft power opportunity for other actors like the media and particularly international non-governmental organisations, right? So Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, Greenpeace. And that's essentially what they've done with the, well, let's say, um, the abolishment of kafala on paper. Qatar have made positive steps to get rid of their sponsorship kafala system, which, as I mentioned, was all about, you know, essentially what we could call modern-day slavery. So that's gone on paper. And that, that's really important because to recognise that, because that's all over the Persian Gulf. Qatar's the only country to have got rid of it. And that's simply due to the pressure it's been put under via negative media scrutiny by international non-governmental organisations. So I think that certainly wasn't an intentional, deliberate legacy from Qatari at day one. But I think looking back, yeah, I think that could be the greatest legacy. It's the social change that Qatar have been symbolically forced into changing, put it that way. Yeah. And, and like you say, they have made changes, but I guess some people would question how they actually... There's still a lot of work to be done, do you think that the work will continue after the World Cup? It's only around the corner, is we kind of running out of time to, to do that? Yeah, so again, people like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch have applauded Qatar for the changes they've made. However, one thing to say is, although it's now not legally, or well, let's say now legally, the Kafala system has been abolished, that doesn't necessarily mean it 
it works out in practice. Now, I think giving Qatar the benefit of the doubt, that's simply because we have to bear in mind you're trying to change a system that's been in place for decades. It's not going to change overnight. Cultural norms and practices don't just change overnight, even though laws can. So I would like to think that in practice, we'll continue to see changes. However, I do think a lot of that depends on what the media and international non-governmental organisations do in terms of keeping the pressure on Qatar. So I think we have to wait until post-tournament to really see, and also during the tournament, because obviously it's an issue that all of the sort of television agencies have been told they can only go to certain places. Journalists going out there, however, will have a field there. They will go you know, wherever they can and everything else. So I think it's important to keep that pressure on during the post-tournament. Yeah. And obviously we've seen subtle-type protests already with Hummel, was it called, um, where they'd manufactured the kit with the Danish team and they'd, that was kind of in memory of the migrant workers that had lost their lives. I think people were talking about they wanted armbands for LGBT rights. Do you think that we'll see more of that or are there going to be rules in place that mean they can't? We'll definitely see that. So actually in the last few days as well, we've seen an individual protester protest outside the stadiums in Qatar and he was arrested. He was released very quickly, uh, but arrested nonetheless. I mean, there's sort of two, there's two forms of protest here. You've got France, for example, which are, who are saying that they will not host any fan zones publicly in protest of Qatar, which is great. For Qataris, that maybe doesn't matter too much, doesn't really affect them. The key thing will be the protest on Qatari soil. Yes, we will definitely see more. I'd be very surprised if we don't. The key thing will be how Qatar handles that, which I think is still probably a bit of a mystery, if I'm honest. Yeah. Despite everything that we've talked about, all the you know human rights issues, corruption, bribery, there's still a lot of hype over the World Cup. Everyone's still really looking forward to it. All the teams are still going. We're all still going to watch it at home. Do you think the sport is kind of that one sector where people are almost willing to turn a blind eye a little bit? And we know that all that's going on, but they're too emotionally invested in football to do much about it. You're absolutely right, yes. So let's take an example. If we look at who a lot of the, where a lot of the critique of Qatar has come from, the UK, and quite rightly, has been one of the sort of centres of that critique through various media publications, etc, etc. And that's great, that should be the way. However, if England win this World Cup, it will not be remembered for human rights and everything else. It will be remembered for being that World Cup we won since 1966. Um, the same way I was talking to my students yesterday, you look at you know, the UAE and Abu Dhabi have a, a just as bad human rights record as Qatar, but you speak to people on the street in Manchester and they love the owners of Man City. So, yeah, I mean, I think obviously the focus during the tournament will be mainly on the football, and that's normal because it is a football event. Yeah. Uh, and I think it will be peppered with you know, various protests and how Qataris handle that. You might even get the odd sort of you know, documentary or, or, or coverage of human rights issues. Dominantly, it will be the football. That will be the focus. So key here then, of course, is what happens after the tournament. What happens once England win it or lose it, and we've covered all those stories, and then there's this void. What happens then? That's normally when you'd expect the media to then refocus their attention away from the football, back onto the social issues. Yeah. And we've obviously, like you mentioned earlier, seen a lot of Middle Eastern countries emerge into the sport um, sector. And like when we think about football, you know, we've got the Man City and Newcastle United owners. And do you think that we'll see more and more of that? And do you think we'll see more and more World Cups being held in those types of countries? Or do you think that 
FIFA are going to have to kind of rethink after this? Well, we already know that Saudi Arabia are going to bid for a 2030 World Cup. And I think that's with Greece and it might be Egypt or Turkey. I can't remember, apologies. I would be surprised if they get that just because normally what happens is you've got a Middle East World Cup. What would happen now is the World Cup would likely go, you know, to a different part of the world. I think what we're likely to see is countries taking a much stronger interest in the Summer Olympic Games, which, again, similar to the World Cup, although it has got the title world in it, the Olympic Games is still very much a celebration of the world and coming together and everything else. So, you know, the, the, the Olympic Games is quite far behind the World Cup in terms of going to new lands. You know, the World Cup recently has gone to Russia, okay, it's gone to South Africa, uh, and now, of course, the Middle East. You know, the IOC hasn't branched out in the same way that FIFA has, and I think that's probably the next big question. But look, I mean, again, going back to just the, these are businesses. There's a lot of money in the Middle East, and it's the, probably the, the key global hub for sport investment at the moment, so you can't ignore it. So moving on to logistics and how is this going to kind of all pan out we know that most of the tickets if not all of the tickets the most matches have been sold out now so that means there's a hell of a lot of people traveling you know and that's not including the teams and the support staff and the referees and all, and all those people that are going to be in Qatar I think I read somewhere that Qatar is like half the size of Wales how are they going to facilitate that yeah so it's a really good point um and it's, it's also a a point that's a bit of a lightning rod as well. So I think there's good and bad things here. So if you went to the World Cup in Russia or Brazil and you had a ticket, you could see one game a day because you'd have to travel hundreds of miles to get to the next one. Qatar is teeny, so you could potentially get three games in one day. You could see England play in the morning, in the mid-afternoon, Brazil, and then later on France. You know, so that could be a really great tournament if you could afford it, of course. It also means getting people around can be somewhat easier and it's less of a pollutant. You haven't got, you know, once you land in Qatar, you can use the metro, you can use a lot of these other things, okay, there's certain pollutants like taxis, but essentially getting people around on, you know, electricity and trains and trams or metro, whatever it may be, which is actually really a cost-effective way of doing it. However, what it means is, is there is a lot of onus on the new metro system, taxi drivers and everything else. So if something goes wrong, and bearing in mind all of this is brand new, and the airport's only been built in the last sort of couple of years, but the metro, for what I understand, is now complete, but it's had teething problems like any metro would. So again, it comes down to Qatar rushing to get everything done. And when you rush, things tend to go wrong. So that will be the other thing we'll see is, you know, will we see people complaining about, well, I bought tickets to this game, but I couldn't actually make it because of this or that or whatever else. Another key thing there as well is that I know that Qatar are building fan villages out in the desert to give like a Bedouin sort of, you know, traditional Arabic feel to it. I'm not sure, I've not read how they're planning to get people to and from the desert, even though it's a small country on a far trip. Once you get into Doha, it's a bit like arriving in somewhere like Los Angeles. It's packed, and particularly during a World Cup. So, yeah, that will be a really big thing, is can you get enough people to the way to be at the right time? That's going to be an issue, certainly. Yeah, definitely. And and also, like we were talking about before, the kind of culture, the way we do things when we watch football here is obviously going to be very different. Obviously, there's different laws over there. They kind of relaxed those types of things. I think people are now going to be able to drink alcohol in certain areas, aren't they, which might not have been allowed previously. Yeah, it's probably the most bizarre thing ever because you've got a country here that's predominantly... Right, so the key thing there, Qatar historically is not a dry country. That's, that's, not, that's a bit of a myth. 
You can get a drink, but it's only in Western hotels, and there's one shop in Qatar that sells beer or alcohol, but you have to have a license. Now, that is a deep, deep Islamic Arabic cultural tradition, and the only thing that's managing to change that is a World Cup. The World Cup will come in, and all of a sudden, it's Qatari laws are going to change. Now, there's still a bit of a sort of you know grey area here because it's illegal to be intoxicated on the street or in public, which is a bit of an issue. So what Qatar are doing is creating what they're calling sober tents. So if you're in a fan zone or in a stadium and you've had a few too many, you'd have to then go in a sober tent to sober up before you've gone on the street. Now, you can't be intoxicated on the street, but once you get back to your five-star Western hotel, you can do whatever you want. So the key thing there is, and this is where it's going to be a challenge, because obviously fans, if they're celebrating, have already had a drink, will probably want to have another drink quite quickly. But according to Qataris, they're going to have to go to these sober tents. I don't know what they're going to be doing in these sober tents and how you're going to keep people entertained, but I'd be very interested to find out more about that. Yeah. So do you think that it'll work? Do you think that it, they'll cope um, and, you know, it'll, it'll go by or bumps in the road, maybe? Um, I think it has the potential to be a really great World Cup from a football perspective, put it that way. You know, Qatar has got some of the greatest facilities in the world in terms of sport, um, some of the best hotels, Arab hospitality is second to none. So, and given the size of the country, I think it, it will have quite a cosy Olympic feel to it. So from a sporting perspective, I don't, I, I, I don't see it being an issue there. I think it will be a case of, A, what wider political social issues arise and how much they interfere with the football side of it. And for that, I'm, I'm worried because I, you know, I, I think you normally get into a World Cup, you look at it and you think this or this or this could happen. But it's a handful of things. With Qatar, there's so many things that could happen here that I just think it makes it very, very difficult for organisers, put it that way. So I don't know is probably the best answer to that, <laughs> if I'm honest. Time will tell. Yeah. I'm aware of the time and I think we've, we've covered a lot, but I don't know if there's anything else that you think I've not touched on or um, areas that that would be good to talk about. I think the only other thing I would mention, which sometimes gets overlooked, is the local Qatari perspective on this. It's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly difficult to access Qataris, to actually speak to them. The Qataris population of 3 million, 300,000 are Qataris, so 10% or less than that. And they're very homogenous. However, from the research I've done previously, although a lot of Qataris in public would say they're very supportive of this, I don't think that's necessarily the whole truth. I think, particularly given all the negative criticism that the country received, I think Qataris are scratching their head a little bit, saying, do we really need this? You know, and you see it all the time. You see football or any sports tournaments in Qatar, no one's there, no one turns up. I don't think there's the kind of love for football and sport in Qatar that's necessarily portrayed by the Qatari state. I think this is much more of a state of Qatar World Cup than it is a local Qatari World Cup. So how much local Qataris will feature during the tournament, I've no idea, but I think it's also very interesting to, to look at, you know, how this World Cup will change the country from a Qatari perspective, which again is very difficult to do. But you know, there's been a country that's been under concrete and, and under change and under international scrutiny now for the best part of a decade. That can't be easy to swallow if you're a local patriotic citizen, put it that way. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Metcast, the official podcast of Manchester Metropolitan University. Your feedback is always welcome, as are much needed reviews and ratings on iTunes. So if you have a moment, please head there and let us know what you think. You can also subscribe to our podcast on your preferred podcast platform. 
that's all for this time though. See you next time.